Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This marks our 100th episode, and this week we chatted with a leading mayoral candidate, spoke to a legendary local artist, and learned about computing architecture. All this plus size matters in the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 11, 2019. Radio Free chatted with mayoral candidate Paul Vallis as part of Lumpin's series of interviews with the candidates of this February's election. Vallis discussed his tenure as the CEO of CPS, why he wants the job in the first place, and what it would take to end what he calls the pay-to-play culture of Chicago. Mario Smith sat in with Jamie Trecker. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time. We have with us today Paul Vallis, the mayoral candidate. Mario, I think we were talking in between the break uh, about where Paul sees himself in this race. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, Chicago Magazine came out with a, a updated ranking list of all 7,655 people running for mayor. You should point out that Chicago Magazine is actually and in they, the and room Chicago today. Magazine's they, here. They've, they've showed here. up. It's my turn. Uh, it's uh, stalked by up. them. They're, you're getting followed today. Um, no, I'm their favorite. They already told me I'm their favorite. <laughs> in, the, in the article, you were named number three. I know. Uh, <laughs> I wish my fundraising reflected that. Well, <laughs> let me ask. Um, prior to the events of last week with Alderman Burke, mm-hmm. um, and that possibly... Exactly. And that possibly... He whose name we will never mention. <laughs> that could possibly change the trajectory of this it race, uh, depending on what comes out of the, the FBI investigation and all that stuff. But where do, where do you see yourself in this big field of candidates, and what is this like for you to run in a in, in what is proving to be more of a sprint than marathon yeah. at this point? Um, how are you? How are you coping? How are you getting along? You know, look, I, I went to New Orleans af, after Katrina, and I had I had ninety days to build thirty six campuses and find eight hundred teachers, and, hmm. and then I went to Haiti a couple weeks after the earthquake, where a quarter million people were killed in uh, in seven minutes because the entire capital of Port-au-Prince. Think of 9-11, only an entire city that looked like 9-11. So suffice to say that after those two experiences, this is a a walk in the park, (laughs) (laughs) okay? You know, you you can't – it's not that I don't take things seriously. I I take public policy very seriously. But, you know, there's uh, – you know, but there are, are people struggling out there every day to make ends meet. You know, this is uh, for me to be able to engage in public discourse and to offer solutions and to think about solving problems is just this is what I do. Yeah, this is what I do. So so, you know, for me, physically, and things, I've been on an adrenaline rush since, uh, you know, since I announced. And and so, you know, so, um, you know, I'm very comfortable. I, I've you know, I, I, but this system is designed to minimize participation. Why do you think we have elections in February? Because they don't want voter turnout. Why do you think we have this convoluted you know, uh, requirements about how to get on the ballot? You know, and then people submit signatures where 80, 90 percent of them are clearly uh, challengeable, challengeable right. but, but no one has the means to challenge them. But yet the election, the election committee, the, election, the Board of Elections doesn't challenge them. I mean – it's all designed, and why do we have an open primary? Why? Because the you know the dailies didn't want to lose to an African American mayor. I mean, you know what I mean? They they knew that in any open primary, uh, if you had uh, you know if you had one African American uh, and then uh, you know and and two white candidates, uh, 
um, you know, Daly would always be in a runoff, and Daly could beat anybody in a runoff. I mean, and if you remember, they actually wanted to have 25,000 signatures instead of 12,000 uh, hmm. to basically get people on the ballot. So the system is designed. The system is designed to minimize participation. That's why we have the election in February, the worst month of the year, after the holidays. So it shortens the election season. It shortens people's attention span. It doesn't give candidates a chance to mobilize. So they, they create conditions to where it used to be people who have the machine can get out to vote. Now it's people who have the money. People who have the money. So, you know, legitimate candidates, unless they're self-funding, struggle because the, the establishment or the political class kind of pick their candidates, and those are the candidates they fund. They decide who they're going to fund and, and who they are not going to fund. So, uh, so the, odds work against, the, the odds work against you. So where does that put me right now? Well, you know, right now, I, you know, I'm in the mix because— uh, You consider yourself three? You know, I consider myself, uh, in the last poll that I saw, this was Tony Preckwinkle's poll, me, uh, Tony was at 22, and Daly, I, and, uh, and uh, Mendoza were within two percentage points of each other. You know what I mean? And then some of the other candidates were in single digits. The important thing is there was 17% undecided, almost as many as <laughs> the, fr- the, <laughs> the front runner, vote yeah. that the front runner had. But can, so, can just to not interrupt, but yeah, 22% is not 50%. It's not 51%. Yeah, so there's going to be a runoff. So the question right. is, do I have the wherewithal to get into the runoff? You know, I believe I do it for a variety of reasons. No one's going to match me on the issues, no matter how hard some of the candidates try to imitate me now, because I started putting my solutions on the board in April, and I post everything. So, you know. You're seeing little elements. Uh, Your with, text, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I put everything. You know, Facebook, you name it. You name it. You, the problem, I'm going to have an opinion on it, whether you like it or not. <laughs> anyway, whether you like my opinion or not. So, uh, so you know, and uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I also have the digital platform. You know, last week I reached 1.5 million voters. Wow. So I was on the airline, and the airline attendants got my text, they, and oh. she liked it. And <laughs> as I was walking out, as I was walking out of the airline, uh, because I still do work in Haiti, and I, I'm finance chair of an organization that does relief work. We've done relief work in Haiti, Florida after the uh, uh, hurricane, in mm-hmm. Carolina after the hurricane. I mean, this is what we do. It was founded by Sean Penn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called JPHRO. It's now called CORE. Mm-hmm. So Google it, look it up, make a contribution. I don't get compensated. I've been the, the finance chair for about six, seven years. So, um, But the bottom line is I walked out of the airport and People recognize me. I went to a police event the other day, and they're getting my text. You know, so um, you know, so I'm gonna. So my digital platform is the type of platform that, you know, President Obama used, and and, and some of those who have really had political breakthroughs used. So, so I, you know, I believe I'm going to be able to be able to reach people in a very substantive way. And then I begun to do a series, and I actually began this a few weeks ago to do a series of town hall meetings uh, on everything that I. I live stream them mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, or, or we put it on a podcast or whatever. So I do every podcast that I'm invited to, no matter how potentially hostile the host. And, uh, 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 and I will do, uh, I will do any, you know, any form. Uh, so I, I've been to the South Side. I've been to Englewood multiple times, mm-hmm. community forum. I, I, I've met with ex-offenders late into the night to talk about their issues, sometimes with a lot of media attention, sometimes with, without media attention. So, so my goal has been to elect, to connect with people, to dominate on the issues, uh, you know, to get as much free publicity I 
can, and I think I get a lot of free publicity because I talk issues and I talk substance, to be available to talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Because some people have said, why are you spending so much time on the South Side and West Side? That's not your constituency. Yes, it is. Mm. Every constituency is my constituency. You know what I mean? Every constituency is my constituency. So to be accessible to the community and then to connect with people electronically. And I think that will do enough to get me into the runoff. And in light of the self-destruction that seems to be occurring, I mean, isn't it ironic that the four front runners? Now, I don't want to say four front runners. I'm sorry, because they're not all front runners. But the four kind of establishment candidates mm-hmm. who, uh, who d- didn't have the guts didn't have the guts to challenge Rahm Emanuel or even criticize him when he was running. Gary Chico didn't want to lose his law business, you know, because he didn't want Rahm to take his law business away, you know. Mm. Uh, Gary talks about being a neighborhood guy. Yeah, he has, his, he has houses in different neighborhoods in different states. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, Daly didn't get in. You know what I mean? And Mendoza doesn't get in. I mean, she, she announces a week after she gets reelected comptroller, Tony, at, at least – indicated that she was planning on running before the uh, election for county board president. Of course, she didn't have an opponent, so she could easily said that. But the point is, isn't it ironic that they all seem to be connected to Burke? Mm. That they all seem to be connected to Burke. So I think this helps me, but it remains a very crowded race. And because the race is so crowded, it's hard to get your message through. When you're on a panel and you have six, seven, sometimes ten people getting one minute to explain uh, uh, to answer a real sophisticated question uh, uh, on a really important issue, it has, has a tendency to kind of like, e- uh, we all, it e- it's a great equalizer. So uh, the candidates of substance cannot, cannot really stand out unless they have the, uh, uh, the, the communications network to allow them to do it. I, I got I to ask, Jamie, I'm sorry, I got to ask. Yeah. Alderman, Alderman Burke is in serious trouble. And, and and there is a very strong possibility that those four front runners, air quotes, um, are on those phone calls. On those tapes, yeah. And and that could literally change the face of this race if those phone calls go south. Now, what just we should point out, early voting does begin, however, January 17th. Yeah, that too. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's something we, we want to keep in mind. And that actually dovetails into it. Would the Burke investigation have such an impact if the election wasn't essentially starting next week you know it's i just think that the window is too small you know i i mean if this were no matter what might yeah. come out yeah. you think it's too small well it's only six weeks left so yeah. is there enough time now the feds to their credit uh you know because they they got you know they remember what happened with ryan mm-hmm. where where you know they didn't really come out with their findings or do their indictments or whatever uh, uh, until after the election, and, and you know, and, and and I think the 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 stuff that they've put out to date is designed to not make that same mistake, and and uh, you know, the feeling that they've got to put out as much as they can put out, so so the public can on their own make their own determinations, and I don't think they would have put out all that stuff if there perhaps was not more stuff out there that they may be releasing. You know, hmm. so you know, so I think they're they're trying to be as forthcoming as possible given the nature of the investigation. Uh and uh and, and obviously they don't want to jeopardize their case. Uh but whether six weeks is enough to really uh make a a, a real determination or draw real conclusions, 
about the degree to which these people were in bed with Burke. And let me tell you, the Burke thing is just symptomatic of the process. You know, I don't, you know, you can criticize Tony Preckwinkle for having Burke raise money and Chico raise money for her. But, 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 you know, but what Burke is doing is done on a smaller scale with so many people. You can probably find links between all these people. You could probably find links with O'Connor or links with, I mean, you could go through a list of the aldermen and, and find connections. This is how the pay-to-play culture works. spoke to Sulin Roca, member of the legendary Harry Who Arts Collective, now the subject of a major retrospective at the Art Institute. Roca spoke about how they got that name, becoming part of the arts establishment, and what the counterculture has to say today. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Today we are speaking with Sue Ellen Roca, one of the founding members of the Harry Who. Welcome, Sue Ellen. Hello. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Uh, so you are here promoting a couple exhibitions that you currently have up. One is at the Elmhurst. Just, just some small exhibitions. No yeah. Deal. Well, we're, we're keeping it cash. Um, uh, the first is at the Elmhurst Art Museum, and it's called The Figure and the Chicago Imagist, and uh, you helped to curate that show. Well, I, I curated the show. <laughs> right. Too. She I'm sorry. is the curator. By <laughs> help, I mean did all of the work. Oh, no, no. I didn't do all of the work, but I curated the show. Let's call it most of the work. Okay, and, and the, sh- the, t- the title is a bit longer. It's the figure in the Chicago Images, colon, selections from the Elmhurst College Art Collection. Internationally be, recognized art collection. And to be clear, the colon is actually a punctuation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. Well, and I... I mean, I feel like we're we haven't set up the show at the Art Institute, but we haven't. We've talked about one thing. We've so talked far. about one thing, but I'm really I want to talk about the show at Elmhurst because it has so. When I went to the show at the Art Institute, which was an amazing, uh, like historically kind of based show about the history of the Harry Who, I wanted to see all of, like the other artists who were working at that time and and like kind of in that framework of images work. And that's what this show kind of is, seemingly for me. The, sh- the show at the Elmhurst. The, the show at Elmhurst, yeah. No, not exactly. Um, not exactly. Um, there, um, the Elmhurst art collection is, the focus of the collection is the Chicago images. So, um, Actually, that show at the Elmer's Art Museum um, was curated to go along with a symposium that we just had on December the 16th, which was very, very successful, called The Figure Humor and the Chicago Images. So I chose 33 pieces from our collection at Elmer's College, uh, all of which are figurative and all of which have humor, and curated that show at at uh, the Elmhurst Art Museum. 
So that's quite different, actually, than what's happening at the Art Institute. The Art Institute is a historically very correct show. (laughs) (laughs) You are the authority, so tell us how correct it is. Of um, the six exhibitions that the Harry Who had between 1966 and 1969. Well, and maybe if I can stop you for a second, one of the things that uh, I feel like often gets conflated is the Harry Who and imagism on the whole, and it, it might help to break those down and talk about that. Let's get to disambiguation. Yeah, I think that's the conflation I just yeah. made. <laughs> and, and actually, you're very correct about that because the official title of the show at the Art Institute is the Harry Who question mark. 1966 and 1969. And Mark Pascal, who was one of the curators of the show, said the reason for the question mark is because so many people confuse the Chicago Imagists and the Harry Who, or people think that other artists known as Chicago Imagists were in the Harry Who. And (laughs) that was one thing. He wanted to really get that straight. The city's uh, finally going to get that the, right. See, right. So that was the reason for the question mark. Um, Take that, Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> the, Who's constantly confusing the images in the Harry Hill. It's a real burning question for him. <laughs> yeah, didn't he just recently talk about that? <laughs> um, <clears throat> the Chicago, the term Chicago images, which of course, none of the Chicago images like that name. <laughs> But as a wise art history professor of mine said once, that you have to have names to talk about things. And True. he's right, right? So um, it's, a, it's a sort of a very general term um, and was coined by a critic uh, and writer and artist, Franz Schultz, um, to describe actually two generations of artists. This will, this will confuse you even more. Okay. <laughs> um, a post-World War II generation of artists, um, most of whom who studied at the School of the Art Institute um, and exhibited in the 50s and are often referred to as the monster roster. Okay, So Franz Schultz said that was first-generation imagists. Well, and then the second-generation imagists emerged in the 60s and really many artists, you know, through through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so forth, there's a very strong influence of what's termed Chicago images. So that would include Harry Who would be probably the, the, the first group. It's the, You have to know a little bit about the history, okay? On the south side of Chicago, there was the Hyde Park Art Center. And, and still is to this day. And still is, <laughs> but it's a, in a very different, uh, it's very different mm-hmm. than it was back then. Back then it was in, I think, a sort of converted, maybe grocery store originally. I'm not sure if that's what it was. But it But it was like a store. It was sort. a store, a lar- very, very large store, like a, a supermarket type thing. Um, and the director of the High Park Art Center was Don Baum. Now, Don Baum was the empresario. He was so important to the um, history of art in Chicago and the development of art in Chicago. But at that time, he was director of the Hyde Park Art Center. And that's where the Harry Who shows were. Right, started. Started. 
Jim Nutt and Jim Faulkner, two members of the Harry Who, went to Don Baum and proposed a show with six, with five artists, and that would be Jim Nutt, Jim Faulkner, Gladys Nielsen, myself, and um, Art Green. Okay, and Don said, "Fine, that sounds great. Let's add Carl Worsham." So that's how the six artists ah. came came about. So we had our first show there in 1966, and um, then we had a second show in 67, and, and our ke- last show in 68. And you kept Carl Worsham, though. You oh, were like, oh. you can stay, or no? <laughs> were you like, you can be in our show, but you cannot call yourself oh, a no, Harry Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, he was just a wonderful addition. Okay. Now, the, t- the question that everybody asks is, where did you get the name Harry Who? Well, you asked it, so I suppose we should probably <laughs> Oh, I'm <answer>. sorry. No, <laughs> go ahead and ask <laughs> Where it. did you get the name Harry Hill? Good okay. job, Dana. So, you know, if you're having a collaborative exhibit, and the reason, reason we were showing together is because our work complemented each other. It, it went well together. Um, <clears throat> so we had a, a meeting to plan the show, and we, of course, were trying to, you know, we, want, we were certainly interested in being non-traditional and we wanted to come up with a name for our group. And so we were just laughing and a lot of laughing <laughs> and just, uh, you know, making suggestions. And then we got off on a tangent. We started talking about a, an artist and, and critic who had a radio program whose name was Harry Boris. And Carl was in the kitchen at the time. He was, Harry Boris had this program on WFMT, and he reviewed... Uh, art exhibitions. You mean like the historical bad at sports? <laughs> this is so, I can't believe that radio has come into the oh, yes. framework of the story. Yes. I'm so excited now. <laughs> so Carl was out in the kitchen um, and he came in as we were laughing and talking about Harry Boris. And he goes, Harry who? Who's this Harry? Harry who? And we all in unison said, that's it. That's the name Amazing. for the group. So that's how we got our name. We had a show in, in at the Hyde Park Arts Center in 66, 67, and 68. We were invited to show at the San Francisco Art Institute at um, the Corcoran Museum in, in D.C. and at um, the School of Visual Arts in New York. So we had a total of six shows. And all, all six shows are repres- work from the original shows, and each show is represented at the Art Institute's exhibition, and they did a ton of research. Well, and yeah, I'm very curious to hear from you, because when you walk into the shows, they really are staged to, they're like historically recreated, like Williamsburg, but that's what it's called, right? Williamsburg? Colonial Williamsburg. Colonial Williamsburg, but like for contemporary art. And I'm what? Everybody's wearing their uh, culottes. Well, they have like the photo, they're like, here's the photos. And like, here's what it looked like, and then here's like how we rebuilt it in the galleries, which is, you know, norm- not what I would normally expect to see in an exhibition. But I am so curious to hear from you how it feels to walk into those spaces and how much fidelity. That was like a question that I had leaving the exhibition: is like, how much fidelity is needed to get into the space of these installations because they were kind of all-encompassing in that way, and also how it feels to kind of step back, like literally step back into history in that space. It's amazing. 
it's amazing that they were able, I, you know, I think we all feel that they were able to recreate the spirit of those shows at the Hyde Park Art Center and uh, also the, the one at, at Corcoran too, because we were involved in, in that installation. Um, <clears throat> our installations, our installations were, were not traditional. We did things like put big yellow price tags uh, <laughs> attached to our paintings that said $99.99. We, we put uh, 1940s flowered linoleum on the, on the walls, some of the walls. And we, put, we had cases with our thrift store uh, finds, uh, our thrift store treasures. Um, so, and, and they have um, included some of those aspects of the installation. Because the shows were not simply putting work up on the wall. They were really early installations. Um, the linoleum is almost exactly the same linoleum. And That's there's wild. a whole backstory about how they connected up with a vintage linoleum um, company that was going out of business. Or something. I mean, I said they should write a book with just the backstories of how they you know, how they were able to define the, the work and, and, and the other various things. Welcome to the show. I'm standing outside the co-prosperity sphere here on Morgan waiting for Kyle. And this episode will be... What's up? Oh, come here. Okay, oh, yeah. park the truck. Don't park. There's a railroad tie in the back. Pull it out and slide it in front of the back tires. It'll come to a full stop. Uh, okay. <coughs> uh, serious carbon monoxide stuff going on yep. with this truck. <laughs> That's not good. I know I, <coughs> I know I kept falling asleep in front of red lights. Whose pickup truck is this, anyway? That's a friend of mine's. I mean, what, do you, what were you doing with it? I've been delivering filing cabinets all over the city. Why filing cabinets? Because it's the safest way for people to keep the facts safe from alternative fact people. Oh, you mean like documents, birth certificates, passports, stuff facts like that? Facts of life. Conversations, photographs, doodles, recipes, mm. all things. See, filing cabinets mm. can't crash or be hacked or manipulated by anything that isn't a crowbar or the key that opens it. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't a hard drive do the job? Hard drive? Are you nuts? Uh, do you have any ideas how easy it is for someone with advanced computer knowledge to get inside of one of those things? <laughs> hey, Janice Joplin, I bet all the recipes that Mars Brewing has are on some dumb computer somewhere. Is yeah. it any surprise at all that we live in an age well, of an just... orange man... And the Patriots cheating <sighs> their way into another Super Bowl. The whole society is becoming undertowed. Yeah, I know. It does feel that way. I just... At least the Women's March was a positive example where the nation can go, you know? It was more than positive. It saved my life. How do you mean? Uh, the carbon monoxide leak in the truck nearly killed me a bunch of times. I was constantly being resuscitated. So you were in the march? I was delightfully trapped in it, actually. I was doing my part in handing out filing cabinets. That's awesome, Kyle. I mean, not very cool for the environment, but your best effort is good enough, as always. You know, I, I don't want to ruin the show or nothing, but I gotta ask, why do you sound so depressed today? Well, an overwhelming sense of dread. Uh, you know what? There's, there's no time to wallow. You can donate, you can volunteer, you can show up and get involved. 
You can make America not like Undertown. Right. Now repeat after me. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make okay. We should write a song. Yeah, okay. What's the best nation? Donation, as it was famously said. I do a lot of things for people, and I don't just write songs for all you jokers out there. Back to Radio Free Bridgeport with the homeboys. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump claims the shutdown could last for years as pressure builds on him and Republicans. Trump claims he got rid of Jeff Flake and some other congressional critics. Nancy Pelosi says a president can be indicted. Trump speaks in prime time, and the new Democrats in the House immediately make waves. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 714, January 3rd. Trump held a cabinet meeting to end the shutdown. It quickly devolved into a stream of consciousness set of lies, revisionist history, and self-aggrandizement. Trump first set a large poster himself with the Game of Thrones dressing on the table before him. This is an image which he had tweeted out that the HBO had threatened legal action over. He then complained about allies and partners from Afghanistan and Pakistan to India and Germany. Several officials spontaneously interjected praise for the president. India, which did not appreciate Trump's remarks, would subsequently protest to the U.S. ambassador. Trump then trashed his former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis as a failure, claiming Mattis had failed in Afghanistan. Quote, what's he done for me? I essentially fired him. Mattis actually resigned in protest over Trump's move to withdraw unilaterally from Syria. Trump then claimed, I would have been a good general, but who knows? Trump then took credit for falling oil prices, claiming they were the result of phone calls. I called up certain people and I said, let that damn oil and gasoline, you let it flow, the oil. This is untrue. Trump also claimed that if his proposed border wall is immoral, then we have to do something about the Vatican, quote, because the Vatican is the biggest wall of them all. Trump finished by claiming, they say I'm the most popular president in the history of the Republican Party. This is also not true. It's worth noting the stated aim of this meeting, border security and the government shutdown, remain unresolved. Trump backed off a deal negotiated by his vice president, Mike Pence, and instead loudly called for $5 billion for his border wall. He also rejected suggestions from Republican senators to revive a compromise that would have paired money for a wall with citizenship for DACA recipients. The performance left Republicans and Democrats baffled. The shutdown continues. Little noted, when Trump was asked about getting new Republicans on board, he cited the retirements of Bob Corker and Jeff Flake and said, I mean, I just got rid of, I mean, I wouldn't say got, they say they're retired. Trump also attacked retired General Stanley McChrystal, saying he got fired like a dog. 
and that McChrystal is a big dumb mouth. McChrystal had called Trump immoral and dishonest in a TV interview saying, quote, I don't think he tells the truth. Meanwhile, New Jersey prosecutors have evidence collected by the New York Times in a series of exposés that supervisors at Trump's Bedminster Golf Club have committed federal immigration crimes. Robert Mueller is now involved in that investigation. At least five employees have revealed themselves as undocumented and furthermore detailed ways staffers have obtained false papers for them. Day 715, January 4th. Nancy Pelosi said it's an open discussion that Trump can be indicted. Pelosi challenged the Department of Justice's guidelines that a sitting president cannot be indicted. The speaker also added that everything indicates that Trump can be indicted after he's no longer president of the United States. Trump told congressional leaders he preferred the word strike to describe the government shutdown. Trump also kicked off the latest meeting over the shutdown with a profanity-laden rant lasting more than 15 minutes in which he said he would not budge in the $5.6 billion to build a border wall. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told him the meeting was supposed to be about reopening the government, not impeachment. The Justice Department is now investigating if former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke lied to the Interior Agency's Inspector General. That would be a potential criminal act. Day 716, January 5th. House Democrat approved a series of bills to reopen the federal government without Trump's border wall money. However, Senate Leader Mitch McConnell said he would not, quote, waste its time with proposals that Trump will veto. Trump followed the passage of those bills by claiming the government would remain shut for months or years, and then claimed he would declare a national emergency to use $4 billion in Department of Defense funds to build his wall. Trump called it the military version of eminent domain, which does not exist. Trump also cannot declare an emergency to build a wall. Ivanka Trump may have violated a conflict of interest law. Trump used an opportunity zone, which gives tax breaks for investing in economically distressed communities. That was something that was passed in the Trump tax bill last year. However, it is supposed to be restricted to people not involved in the federal government. A federal appeals court gave Trump a win on his policy of restricting military service by transgender people. The three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit overturned a decision that had blocked that policy. The Supreme Court is now likely to rule other courts have found Trump's move violates the constitutional rights of transgender recruits and service members. Day 717, January 6th. Multiple reports say Trump and his advisors apparently did not understand or know the ramifications of a government shutdown. Trump's advisors did not realize that 38 million Americans would lose their food stamps under a shutdown and a thousand of tenants would face eviction without assistance from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. More officials are starting to show as TSA workers are beginning to stage sick outs that is starting to impact interstate commerce and air travel. Trump said he would address the nation tomorrow night to discuss what he called the crisis at the southern border. Networks are preempting primetime coverage for the address, which comes as the government shutdown enters its 18th day. In an unusual move, Democrats will also present a rebuttal. The address has been highly criticized due to Trump's lies about the subject. Trump has claimed the crime and drugs are flowing through the border along with terrorists. This is false. Migrant border crossings actually have been declining for nearly two decades. And Robert Mueller's grand jury has been extended by six months. Grand juries are normally impaneled for only 18 months and must be dissolved unless a judge is presented with overwhelming evidence in the public interest. Day 718, January 7th. Paul Manafort shared campaign polling data with a man tied to Russian intelligence during the 2016 campaign. Manafort also discussed a Ukraine peace plan with the Russian Konstantin V. Kilmanek on more than one occasion. Those revelations came in documents filed by Manafort's own defense team, who incorrectly redacted the material. Mueller's team has accused Manafort of lying and breaking the plea deal. Manafort was convicted of 10 felonies, including conspiracy to obstruct justice. 
Natalia, the vessel to Nikia, the Russian lawyer who in 2016 met with Trump campaign officials in Trump Tower, was charged in a separate case. These filings charge her with seeking to obstruct an investigation into money laundering involving an influential Russian businessman. Those filings also reveal she has deep ties to the Kremlin. It has long been thought the Kremlin tried to use her as an intermediary to Trump's campaign. And quietly, Trump has downgraded the diplomatic status of the European Union mission in Washington without informing them or Brussels. The downgrade from nation-state to international organization reverses an Obama administration decision in 2016 that granted the EU an enhanced diplomatic role in Washington. Trump, however, has supported Brexit and described the EU as a foe. Day 719, January 8th. Trump made a televised appeal to pressure Congress into paying for his long-promised border wall, delivering a nine-minute speech on national television that included several outright lies. He also accused Democrats of hypocrisy in exposing the country to criminal immigrants. Democrats made a rebuttal and showed no signs of giving an inch to Trump. The Supreme Court has refused to intervene in a case believed to involve Robert Mueller and an unidentified foreign-owned company. Mueller subpoenaed Company A, that company insisted as immunity and that complying with the subpoena would violate the laws in its home country. The Supreme Court also refused to waive $50,000 a day fines the company is incurring. The company is believed to be a financial institution. Intriguingly, the company in question is represented by Alston & Byrd, a legal firm who previously represented Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, as well as the Republican National Committee in its efforts to obtain some of Hillary Clinton's emails. And Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is to step down. Rosenstein is apparently not being forced out of his position, but rather believes his tenure should last only about two years. He awaits the confirmation of nominee William Barr to make his exit. Day 720, January 9th. Trump stormed out of a White House meeting with congressional leaders after Nancy Pelosi again said she would not fund a wall along the southern border. Stunned Democrats said that Trump had thrown a temper tantrum. The president's allies accused Democrats of refusing to negotiate. Trump subsequently tweeted the meeting was, quote, a total waste of time. Trump also bizarrely sent out a tweet about California wildfires. That tweet read, billions of dollars were sent to the state of California for forest fighters that with proper forest management would never happen. Unless they get their act together, which is unlikely, I have ordered FEMA to send no more money. It is a disgraceful situation in lives and money. Trump's tweet was probably related to Nancy Pelosi being from California. Seven House committees called on Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin to explain why he decided to ease sanctions on companies owned by Oleg Deripaska. Deripaska has been sanctioned for electoral interference in 2016. Day 721, January 10th. A new report has found that Trump and his campaign had more than 100 documented meetings with Russians and or Kremlin operatives. The sheer number of contacts has prompted the authors of the report to note that it is highly unusual and suggests coordination. The Food and Drug Administration suspended routine inspections of the U.S. food supply. The move came in response to the shutdown. Also, TSA officers have started quitting after being forced to work without pay. The shutdown is now on its 20th day. And some $5 million from Trump Farm bailout program is going to a Brazilian-owned meatpacking company. JDS has 73,000 employees at 44 plants in the United States, but it is unusual that a program meant to shield American farmers is going to an overseas conglomerate. The deficit has ballooned under Trump by more than $2 trillion. Trump's disapproval rating continues to rise, with 58% of the country opposed to him. 52% of Americans blame Trump for the shutdown. These are the Trump Diaries. Texine spoke to Henrietta Dombrovskaya about relational database architecture, 
Dombrovskaya discussed quorum theory, objects and relations, and how databases can be used to study biology. Texting Chicago airs every Friday at 11. Our next guest today is Henrietta, or Hedy uh, Dombrovska. And she is, oh, I got the thumbs up. I said it right this time. Uh, from, from the Chicago Postgray SQL user group. Uh, Hedy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are so glad that you were here today. And, and uh, I, I'd like to begin at the beginning. What is PostgreSQL? Well, first of all, PostgreSQL is a database, and it is object relational database, and it's also open source database, which means that you do not need to pay anything to get uh, to use the full blown, like complete version of Postgres. Okay, that's yeah, that's what open source means, and and to to help us understand this a bit better, I think it would also help us to know what an object relational database is. Uh, can can yes. you help explain this? Yes, absolutely. So normally we uh, think about databases as relational databases. You might not think, but at least you heard this word that there are relational databases. But if you think about applications, applications. Um, most of the time, they are object-oriented. They are written on object-oriented language. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, actually, developers wanted to combine the features of object-oriented programming and relational databases. So um, we in Postgres community believe that Postgres is a perfect example of incorporating the relational model with object-oriented features. Got it. Okay. And that's, this is a lot to, to take in. And I am just so, um, I'm so fascinated with all of this new information. And many, many of our listeners will be hearing about these databases and the technology involved for the very first time. And we are so grateful that you're here to, to share it with us. Now, now, you work professionally with database architecture. Can you tell us about what you do, Hedy? Yes, uh, actually, many people ask this because people do not know what databases are and what is database architecture. And uh, the interesting thing is that everybody, each and single listener now, had interacted with databases at some moment. Actually, I believe mostly every day, you just do not know you interact with databases. Mm -hmm. When you buy something on Amazon, on any website which sells something, or you look up uh, your future air trip, so you go to Expedia or Travelocity, you want to book a hotel or like anything, uh, you actually are talking to the databases. You just do not know it. So databases is something which is behind the scene when you access any application online. Mm -hmm. And in order for your experience to be great, in order of your requests or your queries to be answered in a timely manner and precisely, that means that the data on the other side should mm -hmm. be organized in a very efficient way. And mm -hmm. that's what database architects are doing, making sure that information is readily available. No matter what is your request, everything will be addressed promptly and you'll get answer right away. Mm-hmm. Now, th that is a great, um, great explanation, you know, and so any website people are going or visiting where they need a lot of information, the back end of that website that makes it run is your, your database. And people interact, just like you said, people interact with databases every day and don't even realize it. Uh, how about that? 
And so now, what's a typical day like for you at work? Can you tell us that? <laughs> All right. Uh, probably first thing I can tell, there is no such a thing as a typical day for me. The only typical thing is that I take 724 train from my hometown of Palatine to Chicago, and I start working on the train because at the time somebody is online and somebody has some questions, and I start to respond while being on my computer train. And then I come in, and there are lots of of things. So um, I meet with application developers and we talked about what needs to be done. I talk with end users. I talk with our business analysts, with our analytics team. And uh, again, we uh, just decide what needs to be done, what are their issues and how to address them. We plan uh, our future work uh, always, always at any given day when I think that, okay, today I can allocate a couple of hours on developing something cool. Something happens, and then we need to drop everything and address immediate concerns of our end users. Because again, database is not for a database. Database is a service. Mm -hmm. So we service our users at large and our users as like our application developers. So often it happens that um, although I might leave at 5, 5.30, but my workday continues and I need to uh, actually do something on my way home or at home, because then nobody bothers me with questions. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that's my day. Mm -hmm. I mean, work and not work, I'm pretty much combined. Cool. Well, and it's, yeah, a lot of people have no idea, you know, what what a, what a job like that is like. So thanks thanks for sharing. Um, I, I had no idea either. And so, so I think um, it's, it's, it sounds it sounds like a, a lot is going on. Like there's never a typical day for you, but it sounds exciting though. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. yeah absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, now, how how did you get into this career path, and and can you tell us about that, and um, like what what led you to to all of this? Uh, well, uh, my career as a database person, database developer, uh, started very early. Uh, so uh, I'm now in this area for. 35 years. It's like people do not live that long. But <laughs> actually, that's, uh, that's uh, what's like, I've been doing basically for all my life. So mm -hmm. I was studying math, I was majoring in math in my university back uh, in actually not even in Russia in the Soviet Union, because it was that long time ago. Um, and then uh, for one of the courseworks, actually, I wanted to do something more in the programming area. And then I got to know my scientific advisor, and he gave me the book to read, which was Introduction into Database Systems by Christopher Date. Mm. And I first read about databases. I did not know anything about them. It was like, what, uh, okay, uh, 1983. There were like almost no databases. Mm -hmm. And I just read it. And I got, oh, my gosh, it's so cool. So I came back to my scientific advisor and I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I'm doing it for the rest of my life. So that was very interesting. So since then, uh, I like never looked back and I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. So all the rest basically were the consequences of me reading this book. Nancy Clem spoke to Eli Brown, an interdisciplinary artist working in living media. Brown discussed how his work explores queer communities and intimacies, the evolution of the species, and our push for utopia. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second Sunday of the month at 5 p.m. I think I'm still learning about all the connections, and that's part of why um, it's so exciting to be like a part of 
um, the learning process around plants. Um, cause it just seems like it will never end. And it's just something that like, I'll never be bored by because there's always more to know than I'll ever know. Um, you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can imagine, but yeah, I think I started, I started working with plants and kind of like more commercial, um, context, like doing a lot of landscaping and, installation and maintenance type work in um, New York City for all kinds of very wealthy clients and celebrities, Um, Harvey Weinstein being one of them. Um, I just have to. I just just have to. Uh, So that, I think, doing that for a few years, I think, like, made me feel jaded about um, I'm like frustrated by the waste that was happening like in that industry, the gardening industry, which is like very much a service industry. And especially in New York city you can feel that way um, when you're kind of like padding through people's apartments and your booties because no one wants dirt on their floors. And those folks who are hiring you are often not able to see their gardens a lot of times because they have multiple properties and they're not even <laughs> home to sort of like enjoy them but when they're um, home they want to see it right right i hope so they better <laughs> but um, yeah i think that made me really want to be more in touch with the process of like what it actually means to um care for a plant as opposed to sort of like um like slamming it into the ground and often like removing it when a client feels a certain way about it um, felt like um, really not sustainable. Um, so I think that experience pushed me to want to learn farming and I started to do that a little bit and um, did that for a number of years. It's like really seasonal work and um, that part was hard, but I really loved it. I loved everything about it. And um, I feel like I always kind of had this hunch that plants were queer and maybe even trans, in, according to me. Um, but I didn't have like the science to back it up. I was just like working and sort of like not knowing um, the whole, the, the why behind what I was doing. It was more just like, you know, we have to come up with this much pounds for this week. Um but so the transplants partially sprung from from this experience that I had at this place called um, UC Santa Cruz. They have a oh yeah um, the agroecology program. Yeah, so, yeah, you know it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 was. Uh, back in 2013, I did this apprenticeship program there. That they have like a six-month apprenticeship program where they're teaching you organic farming, like sustainable food systems. Um, and you're paying to be there, but you're also working for them. And you're there with like 50 people and everybody is sort of like living together and cooking for each other. Uh, it's pretty intense in that sense, like the community aspect. Um 
that's like a whole other story, I guess. But uh, there, so at the end of that experience, you have to produce a thing, something. Um, and the thing that I came up with was the scene. And it was mostly because despite like the, I feel like a lot of aspects of that program were like frustrating um, in various ways. But the part that was really exciting is learning the science behind growing and especially the part about the botany part that the that plants um, actually can express multiple genders just like people can and that actually most flowering plants do have what's called perfect flowers, which means that they possess both male and female reproductive parts. And I think mm-hmm. when I learned that, I kind of like freaked out. Um, yeah, that's a technical name. It's called perfect. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I, I tend to agree with that. <laughs> accurate phrasing. Um, but I might be a little bit biased. I think, yeah. So like, I think that having sort of the science to back, back up my hunch and like my feeling, um, that plants were and are magical and queer, um, and existing sort of in this space that like, I'll never fully understand. And I prefer it to be that way. That was really exciting. And I wanted to honor them. And I guess, the way that I know to do that is to sort of like spend time with them and draw them. Um, so I think zines are just a great way to like both um, be like drawing stuff and collaging stuff and also writing. Um, so yeah, it felt like a, it felt like a perfect way to sort of piece together um, my interest in, the botany aspects of um, what I was learning and like really try to understand it. And I think it helps to like to write um, through new ideas because that helps me at least try to retain some of the information. There's so much information to be retained. Yeah. I mean, you have such a a broader creative practice than what shows up on your website. I mean, you're talking about your drawing which is really beautiful, and your writing um, is great as well. And uh, it doesn't show up on your website. So you also um, <laughs> you also worked with uh, the Just Seas Collective, which was started by former Chicago dweller Josh McPhee. And uh, you yeah. produced a poster of Bayard, um, Bayard Wilson, uh, Rustin. Yeah. Oh, really well-respected black gay leader of the civil rights movement and later the gay movement. Um, so yep. I'm wondering, by not showing these projects, are you discerning projects from practice and why? Or, you know, is this an act of protection for certain things that you're investigating? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm really in the midst of figuring that all that out and I think you know maybe because I thought a little bit about it since we last sort of briefly talked about this but it might have a little bit to do with like the fact that transplants and that poster are for sale and 
I think maybe it makes sense to me to keep them away <laughs> from the website, which is just like a place to archive projects and maybe not try to sell anything. Um, so I think that's part of it. But other than that, I don't know. There's no good reason. Um, <laughs> like they could totally show up there at some point, and like maybe they should. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.